Imperial Media presents The Brooke Taylor Show Encounter, Adventure, Evangelize And now your host, Brooke Taylor Welcome, welcome, welcome to the show And we are in the month of May The month of Our Lady When the world is in bloom I love this time of year And we have a great show for you lined up today This episode is brought to you by our sponsor Select International Tours A pilgrimage is more than just a trip Don't go alone Sacred travel is an opportunity to travel with others Who share your love of adventure and and a zeal to draw deeper into their faith. Father John Michael Paul and I have been partnering for pilgrimages for four years now. Whether Father is visiting a village in Cameroon, a priory in Corsica, or hiking in Colombia, he brings his depth of knowledge and love of the Lord on pilgrimage with us. And we always work hard to bring you the best experience. Through my own years in media, it's my job to curate a second-to-none itinerary and communicate all the details from preparing to processing on the journey itself. And our guides are the best. It really is a special, life-changing, transformative experience. Join us as we travel to Oberammergau, Germany for the world-famous Passion Play next June in 2022. And in fact, see all of our trips by visiting selectinternationaltours.com slash BTS. That's selectinternationaltours.bts. So today's show is going to take us into the world of bioethics, gender ideology, medical ethics ethics during COVID. And then also a personal note, and you'll hear how I got connected to our guest on today's show, and that's Dr. Marie Hilliard. So we have a broad spectrum of topics today with the disclaimer that there's much more to be said in all of these areas. I know you know that, but I hope you'll find today's conversation a compelling starting point just to get us thinking, to be praying, I think, about needs that often aren't even on our radar, and just to learn more about bioethics in general. So before we get into the interview, I just want to underscore the point that, as you will hear Dr. Hilliard emphasize a few times, the NCBC, the National Catholic Bioethics Center, does not give medical advice. She does reference, though, a few documents and websites, so I've done my best to link those up for you. That's in the show notes for additional resources, and you can also reach out to me personally at thebrooktaylorshow at gmail.com. All right, let's jump in. Today's guest is Dr. Marie Hilliard, a senior fellow at the National Catholic Bioethics Center. Dr. Hilliard is a retired Army colonel serving more than 20 years, including as an acting deputy commander for the United States Army Reserve Brigade. She holds graduate degrees in maternal health, child nursing, religious studies, canon law, and professional higher education administration. So safe to say Dr. Hilliard has not been spending a lot of downtime watching soap operas or surfing social media. Dr. Hilliard has been a board member of several state and national organizations, including the Canon Law Society of America. She has served as a resource on the implementation of the ethical and religious directives for Catholic healthcare services, as well as church-state relations. She is the former chair of the National Advisory Council of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, the USCCB. And that is just the abbreviated bio. So delighted to welcome today our guest, Dr. Hilliard. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Brooke. Very happy to be here. I sometimes say I'm 150 years old. So <laughs> I, when I hear that and I'm thinking, well, some of these things overlap. So don't think that uh, I have been uh, some superwoman. I haven't. There are certain things that just overlap each other in terms of responsibilities. But I'm very happy to be here. 
And I, and I want to jump into that before we unpack some of our questions, because the relevance of bioethics cannot be overstated. I'm just curious for you, how of all the medical disciplines that you could have oriented yourself towards, why bioethics? Well, it's very interesting because I don't think I ever intended uh, as a young professional to be in the field of bioethics, but I think it's inevitable if one is going to be practicing in healthcare, especially today, uh, you're going to encounter dilemmas that need addressing. And even as a young nurse in a very good environment, things inevitably come up because uh, it's just uh, the nature of healthcare as technologies evolve. So my very first publication as a young nurse was in the area of uh, bioethics long before I uh, pursued it as a professional goal, although I often took uh, courses or continuing ed in that area. So I think it's just a a natural evolution for someone involved in healthcare. So it's interesting because to this day, when people ask me, who I am professionally, I say I'm a nurse, I'm a registered nurse, and I am licensed, I'm licensed in a number of states because of the military. If I just look back as a 21-year-old nurse, a new graduate, and situations I was facing, it was inevitable that I would be sitting here right now talking about ethics with you. Well, as a 21-year-old nurse, how much did your, your faith and your formation come into play during that time? Everything. And again, uh, I'm a seasoned professional, let's put it that way, practicing before Roe v. Wade. So even in the secular world, there are standards in terms of natural moral law that we all respect that have become disrespected, I think, in some arenas now. So it was easier in uh, as a new professional for me uh, in a, a non-Catholic environment where I was practicing a great environment to uh, be respectful, have the, have others be respectful of my views. And my views were strong. I come from a, a very strong uh, Catholic family with five brothers and a mother who went to Mass every day, a brother who's a permanent deacon, ordained in 1973. My priest brother is now deceased. So the um, catechesis in my home was outstanding, I'll have to say, thanks to my parents. Yes, I had Catholic education. But um, as we know, the parents are the first educators of their children. And I know we're not going to be talking about this today, but there are guidelines for this um, administration of the sacraments for persons with disabilities. And even within those, that document and in canon law, the importance of the home. We talked a little off the air about this, and I hope to make that seminar available that you wrote on, and it was published for the by the Canon Law Society of America, but it really was insightful to me. You offer real-life situations and scenarios. I had shared with you that my daughter recently made her first communion, but again, the building blocks of the home and the parents in the domestic domestic church. And that was the reason I reached out to you firstly was a personal one. As our listeners know, our daughter Carolina has special needs and she's going to be turning 11 in a few months. So more and more issues pertaining to gynecological health are coming into view. And that's why on a personal note, I reached out. And as her proxy, I just have a lot of questions and have found, unfortunately, not a lot of good sources to help some of those questions that I have still looking for different resources. And I know that this is personal in nature, but I wanted to bring this onto the show because one in 31 now are diagnosed with autism. And that doesn't include 
any other area of special needs or disability. And so it affects so many of us. And particularly, I just want to start there with some of my questions, and then we're going to open it up to some different topics and listener questions. When it comes to puberty, specifically biological females, and I'm talking about with an intellectual disability in this case, but what ethical considerations should we be aware of regarding, there's so many things, but I'll just start with menstrual manipulation, hormones, artificial contraception, and birth control, because we know church teaching, I hope most people know church teaching on this. Is there an exception? Is it different for those with disabilities? The basic answer is no. A person with disability and their human and physiological and psychological and social, sociological development needs to be respected and their natural development needs to be respected. However, there are adaptations, let's say, that could be morally uh, listed. And those are on a case-by-case basis. The readers, there are two, two resources, and I, and I want to uh, quote uh, from an ethical and religious directive in answering your question, but there are two resources that are very helpful. One is are the ethical and religious directives for Catholic healthcare services. They have a long history in, the, in Catholic healthcare because we know that the history of healthcare in the world is really the history of the Catholic Church. We're the largest provider of non-governmental health services. And these are updated regularly. It's the sixth edition, and it provides great guidance to healthcare professionals, but also to recipients of healthcare. And I'll talk about one that's in here that I think is relevant to the question that you raised, Brooke. But the other organization that I sit on the board of this organization is the National Catholic Partnership on Disability. And they can be accessed at ncpd.org, ncpd.org, with numerous resources, including blogs that I think are very helpful for parents to be able to communicate with each other, Facebook page, resources in terms of reaching out as a parish to persons with disability, including on the whole spectrum that you just raised. Mental health council, there's outreach on dementia, outreach on autism. But in any event, to get back to your first question, the ethical and religious directives are divided into six uh, segments. The segment on professional patient relationships speaks to the issue you just raised. All persons served by Catholic health care, and of course recipients too, have the right and duty to protect and preserve their bodily and functional integrity. This is all persons. The functional integrity of the person may be sacrificed to maintain the health or life of the person when no other morally permissible means is available. So we get to the proportionate benefit to risk of what we're doing. So I know there's great concern and the case you brought to me, which is an old case, a case where a, a parent, parents thought in true best interest of their daughter to stop uh, growth and uh, also stop sexual development, uh, remove uh, the womb so there wouldn't be menses and the cramping that would go with it. And all their reasons in terms of their intent were understandable. But intent alone doesn't satisfy some of the decisions that we make under the principle of double effect. Sometimes we have to mutilate a normal healthy function if there's a cancer there, for example. But do we stop normal development when there's other ways to protect young women? 
from perhaps, and you've, you've raised the issue of sexual assault, we have an obligation because it isn't just the pregnancy we're protecting them from or the sexual transmitted disease. We have to protect them from the assault. A few things quickly. Ashley treatment is, is what you're referring to there in a case which you can really easily find, but it was controversial at the time because the parents had removed their daughter's breast buds, full hysterectomy, and everything that would really biologically help her develop into a, a grown woman. And the reason they did it was because they felt that it would be easier for care and they had a whole host of reasons. And then I've also heard the argument in in regards to the functional integrity, if it is a person with a disability, particularly, you know, physically or intellectually, it's nearly 90% of those with disability are sexually assaulted at some point. And if they are on artificial birth control, or I don't even know, actually, to be honest with you, if, if like an IUD. So in that case, the, the clarity you might be able to offer. Well, first of all, let's just talk about the IUD. The IUD clearly has potential for being an abortifacient, even though the FDA labels it a contraceptive. Uh, it has the potential of preventing the implantation of an already fertilized egg, which is a human being, the embryo. So that is clearly problematic. The ethical and religious directives actually address, the, the, it's called more, the morning after pill in the vernacular, but there is a, a directive here that addresses, I think, closer to what you're, and I'm gonna read that too for our, our readers. Compassionate and understanding care should be given to a person who is a victim of sexual assault. Healthcare providers should cooperate with law enforcement, etc. Female who has been raped should be able to defend herself against potential conception from sexual assault. And that's what you're addressing here, Brooke. If after appropriate testing there's no evidence that conception has occurred already, and see with the IUD, we don't know that. Right. Uh, she may be treated with medications that would prevent ovulation, sperm capacitation, or fertilization. It is not permissible, however, to initiate, initiate or to recommend treatments that, that have as their purpose or direct effect the removal, destruction, or interference with the implantation of a fertilized ovum. So looking at that, and we struggle uh, on a case-by-case -case basis, if there's ongoing evidence of the potential of, for rape could hormones be uh, prescribed. We have been very hesitant to say that we're comfortable. And the bigger question is, aren't we really more obligated to protect this young woman from that assault rather than relying on the hormone? And I think I appreciate that. It speaks to the complexity. And like you said, the case by case basis, some are nonverbal, some are in group homes, some it's a homeschool situation. And so you can be relatively sure that you see the safety every day because you're with that child. The other thing I wanted to ask, I guess more on a practical, is what about the necessity of a pelvic exam? I guess first and foremost, what age would you recommend that for someone with an intellectual disability? And I think about my daughter and she had to be put under general anesthesia for a dental cleaning. So I can hardly fathom the trauma that a pelvic exam would induce. The best practice is really to discuss that with your provider, not just the medical provider, but someone who's been involved with the special needs for your child because yes, this could be, and even for a teenager who's uh, not developmentally in terms of uh, being compromised and understanding what's happening here, it can be traumatic. And I would say for any parent, what, what unfortunately what sometimes we hear is parents are just so quick 
before menses, bring them for a pelvic so we can get them on birth control and, and stopping normal physiological funct functioning. And there's evidence, and we don't give medical advice, we're very clear about that uh, at the National Catholic Bioethics Center, but there is evidence, uh, the, the younger one starts with that hormonal, tr hormonal treatment, what some of the negative medical consequences can be down the line. So, and of course, we're not encouraging at all that the, the young woman be put on contraception. But when one looks at, as my mother would say, uh, sanctity is sanity, some of the side effects that down the road young women are experiencing, also for thinking they have to make themselves available sexually. So it's not just the young woman with a disability in terms of the full spectrum of development psychological, spiritual, uh, and, and certainly physical. It, it really has to be a one-on-one. -on -one. Is the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists a good, a trusted source on this? How do we find a good resource of someone who would be specializing in disability care? I would refer you to the Catholic Medical Association. And there are wonderful people who are very pro-life OBGYNs. Uh, one of them, uh, Dr. Kathy Raviel, uh, a very uh, great resource in terms of uh, what is in the best interest of all women and families in terms of reproduction. So the Catholic Medical Association, they're available and I sit on their board of directors and co-chair their ethics committee. So I have great regard for, I'm not a physician as we know, I'm a nurse, but it is a organization of Catholic physicians. And that organization is available at CathMed, C-A-T-H-M-E-D.org. On that webpage, by state and by specialty, some physicians have allowed themselves to be named there. But if you, you don't see an, an expert, expert in your region, in the area you're looking for, of uh, expertise, uh, just call. Okay, CathMed.org. Great. Yes. Thank you. Thousands of physicians are members. That's fantastic. It, well, this brings up the need for good advocacy all around. Everything we've talked about goes back to that, to those with disabilities. And that includes our elderly population. And a great example of this is COVID, what we've seen, what we're still experiencing, where the most vulnerable have been deprived in many cases of their basic rights. And in one of the episodes, because I listened to the NCBC podcast, a great point was presented about why it's so important to allow family members access to their loved ones in nursing homes. We've all seen the videos of they're behind glass and waving or unable to have that face-to-face -face because these advocates, our family members more than anyone else, are able to see the needs of that person and advocate for them. But people also want to do the right thing. We want to follow the rules. We think if we follow the rules, it'll expedite normalcy and we can get back to the way it was. But in the meantime, so many are experiencing a loss of dignity and a breach of of their rights, their basic rights. How do you think this is happening so broadly? Do you think it's because there isn't enough awareness of our rights? This is a topic very near and dear to me. And actually, uh, through the Canon Law Society, I also published on access to the sacraments by those dying of COVID. And actually, it was broader than that. Uh, priests have been de denied access to hospitals for non-COVID patients. So, it's it's a tough tightrope to walk. You know, I am a nurse, very aware. Of, I live in a, a military retirement community in which this has been handled very well, but 
there are restrictions that even the government has imposed in terms of visiting between levels of care. So there are a number of layers of regulation that have impacted access. And my, as a canon lawyer, uh, my significant concern was access to the sacraments. And uh, I've actually written on it. And there are ways in which the sacraments, especially to the dying, without having direct contact, can be effectuated. And uh, this has been of great concern because people have been dying without the sacraments. They've been dying without the sacraments. And dying without the loved one to call for the sacrament when they saw uh, that perhaps uh, the end was nearer than maybe they had been aware of because they weren't having access. So it's a very legitimate concern. And as I have said to my colleagues uh, at the National Catholic Bioethics Center, and they agree, what has happened during this pandemic, as important as it was because the deaths occurred in in, in high levels of significance in long-term care, that's where they occurred. But the importance of never letting this happen again. We have to look at this now in retrospect and how do we address this better? And how does the church say, wait a minute, we have to, we have to be able to minister? Uh, one of the things that was very creative, I know of a canon lawyer who got his permission of the bishop to give general absolution outside of a nursing home with a bullhorn. And it's the Apostolic Penitentiary of the Vatican actually did a wonderful piece on, on this very point uh, during COVID, uh, access to the sacraments also, and talked about the validity, and there is a provision always, we see it in the military, for general absolution, with the understanding when you have access to face-to-face confession, you have any serious sins that haven't been confessed need to be confessed. But even the Apostolic Penitentiary from the Vatican uh, issued early on in the pandemic the access through uh, general absolution. There's also the emergency right of uh, the sacrament of penance where a priest doesn't have to hear an articulation of sin, can stand outside a COVID room, for example. But in any event, it's all part of the same package. The family that has concerns about their loved one and access. To be clear, though, because there have been stories where a daughter has not been able to even say goodbye to her mom at the last moments, that those circumstances are a violation of our religious liberty. If I'm misspeaking, please correct me, but also to deny sacraments to the dying, to deny a family from saying goodbye, that would be a breach kind of out of bounds of any medical facility or government to enforce that. I think it is a conscience right that uh, has been has been breached. However, there is, you know, whenever we talk about our right being breached, the can we accept accommodations? And, and what I try to do is provide those accommodations in what I wrote. So have we been willing uh, to provide alternatives? And that is as church. And I, I'd like to give an example of a great alternative that was provided by the Archdiocese of Boston. There's a whole cadre of younger priests who were less vulnerable, who agreed to live together, who were uh, pro- appropriately prepared in how to avoid contamination, who went from hospital to hospital in the Boston area and were received well by those hospitals to administer the sacraments to those who were dying. So yes, uh, there I think now granted, when we admit ourselves to a hospital, we agree to go uh, comport ourselves consistent with their requirements. 
it's not our home. It's not our home. And so there are requirements that probably under a legal analysis, the hospital had the right to do it. But the right to our religious liberty and the access to the sacraments, I think, is protected by the, the free exercise clause of the First Amendment, which is very misunderstood. The First Amendment doesn't guarantee just that we can worship free exercise. And that's, Brooke, where I think we have the hook, if you will, right. to make sure this never happens again. There are a few listener questions, so I'm going to jump into one that does tie into this. It says, is there another, is there a tool or resource offered that we can utilize not just for COVID, any and all research and development of vaccines or medicine? How do we know the ethics or Catholic view of any procedure or medication that we are given? This specifically pertaining to the vaccine now, as we are in a world where Christian doctrine is no longer considered or even specifically targeted, I think consumers have to be more aware than ever that we are advised uh, from our medical professionals. So maybe some resources or tools she's asking. Sure. First of all, the church was proactive in this back in, first of all, there's a, a document in the 80, 1987, uh, Donum Vitae, from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith that was already looking at in vitro fertilization, which is all tied up with the same uh, concerns you've raised, Brooke, in terms of where society has gone in terms of respecting uh, embryonic and fetal life. That document was followed up in 2008 by uh, Dignitas Personae. And Dignitas Personae from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith lays out even specifically speaks to parents and vaccines about there are a number of things before COVID that were developed and are being developed using cell lines from fetuses aborted decades ago. And so this has already been addressed by the church and vaccines that perhaps parents didn't even know, for example, MMR, rubella, is developed similarly to some of the vaccines for COVID using a cell line from an aborted fetus. The same for chickenpox vaccine, varicella, and there are no alternatives in this country. So the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith actually started addressing this way back in 2008. Now, a number of the, uh, and, and it's a great document, and if you go on our webpage at the National Catholic Bioethics Center, there are Q and A's that are going to help you. And um, there's a webpage, Children of God for Life, that does a lot of research in, um, in that area and uh, lists vaccines where there are alternatives. And there are other organizations, if you go on our webpage, it'll refer you to those other organizations that have done uh, research in this area. Now, you said a number of products we use every day. Are you talking about just daily products, cosmetics and different things that might have fetal cell line traced back? There is, and I don't have the name of products for cosmetics, but there actually are types of acetaminophen that purportedly have been developed uh, not all, so that's why I refer, refer you to the web pages that list those things. But in any event, in fact, at the Catholic Medical Association, there was a physician who did some significant research. And of course, we all want to be um, non-cooperative, let's put it that way, in terms of such evil. And then the physician was looking at the number of medications that are prescribed regularly, even things uh, involved with hypertension that one was just unaware that this has been occurring. And so 
Uh, that doesn't mean they can't be used. They would know that the the advice given under CDF's historical documents right through to COVID in terms of in the absence of alternatives, perhaps the doc- even there is an alternative and the doctor says, but for you, you need this one. We are not cooperating with, uh, in a formal way or even in what's called immediate material cooperation where we've provided an essential circumstance to an abortion. And so it's morally okay. So I don't want people to get really scrupulous about this because these decisions have to can be made on a case-by-case basis. Okay. Appreciate that. There's just so much to wade through. There's so much on all sides to try to find solid sources and the most accurate and up-to-date. And as we conclude, I just had one more, which I know we could spend an entire show on. So this is not doing the question justice, but I want to touch on it because it's something for me that the alarm bell has been ringing an issue that I just don't hear discussed enough. And that is the gender ideology. Particularly, there is a trend in gender transition in young people, young girls, and now we're seeing that they have access to hormone treatments, in some cases without a psychological evaluation first, in some cases without parental consent. And this is something that is really disturbing to me. And for those that aren't aware of this going on, we also have right now going on the the so-called Gender Equality Act. Can you take us a little bit into what we're seeing play out in our country, in the world, really? Well, a lot of it now, even uh, secular experts are thinking, is by the power of suggestion, what's been in the media. And uh, developmentally, I'm a pediatric nurse by preparation, and, um, and my graduate degree in nursing is in that area, as you mentioned. School-age children, it's normal. You know, boys don't like girls school-age, and it's like, ugh, you know. And, uh, and uh, girls like each other and maybe even have a normal crush on uh, a role model, and that's not sexual, that's just normal development, someone you would want to be like. Just because what's all, all going on in the media uh, and heralding this, there's uh, the power of suggestion, oh, my child must be therefore transsexual, therefore we must accommodate this through medication. And again, if you get to my mother's sanctity of sanity, the data is now showing some adults are now suing because of these the stopping of puberty and even surgeries that were done because the data is showing and good sound data that originally came out of Dr. Paul Hugh, who um, a psychiatrist who published extensively on this area. If we just don't intervene, most vast majority of young people will outgrow that stage. And late if we do intervene, and in countries, in some European countries where they've studied this and done a 10-year study post-surgery in a culture where, Scandinavian cultures, where it was well accepted, the suicide rate is phenomenally high. It's like 11-fold. So we haven't addressed what is some psychologists think is very much like anorexia nervosa in terms of a distorted body image. The distorted body image can occur developmentally. Fix it by surgical intervention. We don't do that. Right, which seems self-evident, especially from just the strictly Catholic perspective. And Dr. Peter Kreeft was so wise when he talked about this, that, you know, Jesus was pure truth and pure love. And we have these two swords of, of truth and love, and both of them need to be together. And so the loving thing to do is to be rooted in truth with love. But now there is a push for the 
affirming care, that the medical professional would affirm whatever is going on in the mind of that patient. And I just received a message from someone who talked about this, and it was in relation to the Equality Act. And it says, it's it's actually someone supporting, it said, these laws stand in direct opposition to the evidence-based care recognized by numerous professional societies, including the Academy, American Academy of Pediatrics, American Medical Association, Endocrine Society, American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, that we should be affirming the gender of whatever the child says. And that's a really scary thing, particularly when there's really little regulation in regards to hormone treatments that irreparably harm the fertility of these young men and women. And are dangerous too. Those drugs are not benign. They're not benign at all. Interestingly, you cited those organizations, but at the same time, it's fact that there's very little research behind these interventions. It's it's just not there. And we have no long-term studies. Certainly the side effects of these medications are uh, known. And it's an off-label use for uh, a number of them in terms of what they were intended to do. So over time, we're beginning, there was a, a country just recently, a medical group, and they're now beginning to look at that and say, wait a minute, we've got to stop. Although European Union has been probably where the United States has been. And uh, the, the bigger concern, and it's a huge concern, and presidential statement that hospitals uh, should not be discriminating, which they were here we're getting to the transgender community and we don't discriminate against the transgender community. But we're not vending machines where you tell us what you want and we will do it. And uh, there has there is a paragraph in that order that does say it will respect all existing court orders and there are some that have been protective of Catholic health care as well as um, the laws that are protective of our conscience that are still on the books at the federal level. But it is of concern because we as providers, not as just parents, but as providers, don't want to cooperate in something that's mutilating. And uh, now that whole trend that you've cited, those medical, uh, those professional organizations, and now the government saying, this is a good and you must provide it, that is very problematic because the science isn't there. The science right. isn't there. And it's happening so fast and younger and younger, and it's irreparable. That's the name of a book by Abigail Shearer in which has gone around the world, which I appreciate in that she's exposing this, and it's called Irreparable Harm. And on the cover is a young girl, and there's a hole in the middle of her body, and it represents an entire generation loss that can no longer carry a baby, that their fertility is forever altered. It's because of a decision they may have made at a young age to get hormone treatments. And you're seeing, I mean, of course, these stories make the news where it's four and five-year-olds, but it is a reality. These are real human beings that are impacted. And as you said, looking at the suicide rate, it goes to show you it's not just because their brain is telling them they're stuck in the wrong body, but that they the loving and the true thing to do would be to seek the root of the issue and work it in a holistic way and a in a way that respects their dignity and the way that respects the biological gender that God created them to be. Yes. This ideology is more dangerous to the whole population of young people, not just those undergoing uh, the transition, because the whole understanding of human sexuality and human identity is at risk here. The whole concept that we are binary, binary in terms of male-female, God created us, and the complementarity, and we don't get to choose because every single cell in our body contains the chromosome 
for what we were engendered at the moment of conception to be male or female, every single chromosome. And so, and I'm not talking about, there are uh, physiological alterations that have occurred through nature that create ambiguous genitalia or even chromosomal patterns that are, are, are less clear. And that, that is a whole, we're not talking about that here. But it's the whole concept of human sexuality and uh, male and female, he created them and what that means and the beauty of it. And to that point, as we wrap up, you do have an Ask an Ethicist feature on the website, which is invaluable. That's how we connected. Could you tell us about how to access that? 24-7, it's available. A doctorally prepared ethicist. We have an email. If you just go on our webpage, uh, it's it's right there, as you've just said, Brooke. We have email access, and that's probably better if you. it's not urgent because we have then five work days to, to answer that. Uh, we are, but there's also a phone number, and um, especially for the end of life or women involved in uh, a miscarriage uh, where it's more urgent in terms of we don't do medical advice, but the moral dilemmas that they're faced with at the time. So there's a phone number there, too, and you'll follow the prompts. And again, 24-7, there is an ethicist available to you. The website is ncbcenter.org. I was just telling my husband as I was reading some of your publications the other day that years ago, second miscarriage that I had, it was 13 weeks of gestation and I delivered the baby at home and it was such a horrific trauma. The whole thing did not know what to do with with our, our baby boy, our son. And so my husband brought him to the hospital and said, can we have a burial service? And they said, we will take his remains. And at the end of the month, all of the miscarried babies are buried together. Having read the publication, if I understood it correctly, that is not appropriate. Is that correct? No, it can be appropriate. I'm not okay. sure that a burial occurred. Actually, I've, I've published on that and it's on our webpage. They shouldn't be commingled altogether. They should not. They're, right. The remains should be separate, but they could be in one casket. Okay. And, um, and I don't know how the hospital did it, but we don't treat your beautiful children as biological ways, never. But they can be as little caskets or little boxes, not okay. commingled within, Okay. in a casket. And then, the, but they have to be identified, identifiable so that in a place where you actually can go and pray. And there's a, a hospital, actually a hospital in Connecticut that has, it's St. Mary's in Waterbury. And one of their um, pastoral care persons wrote her article and I followed up on it, and it's on our webpage. What they do is, like twice a year, they have a service for the families, and the family knows where their loved one, their child, has been buried. But it might be in one casket, but individual containers. And so not commingled in a container, but... Okay. And identifiable. So I don't know how that was done. Well, how was that resolved for you? It, it never was grief-wise because I, oh, no. the whole thing, and I think you encounter this probably a lot with those people who are calling in the midst of whatever crisis is going on, is everything is a fog, you can't think. The, the miscarriage was so traumatic and so quick, and I wasn't as formed in my faith at that point, but I, I wasn't satisfied. I see now the beauty of these beautiful moms who have a service for their child and a proper burial in consecrated ground with prayer 
there, you know, and I'll never know. I suppose if I call back at the hospital now, where where Luke is what we named our son, where Luke's remains are. Mm -hmm. But these are the things I think are so important for us to know even ahead of time. That's why I just think the, the bioethics information is is so important, the advocacy in all areas. I think the same thing with a lot of people who are cremated. They don't know that those uh, cremains must remain in together, right? That we, we are not to just scatter the ashes. And right. this is something that it wasn't until my dad was dying and he wanted to be cremated that we, that we knew. But I think a lot of people don't know. They don't. No. It's... Interesting, because as you say, the it, you never resolve the grief, but it helps ameliorate the grief if it's done correctly. Thank you so much for your years of faithfulness and dedication, for being with us today, and for the work that God still is calling you to do. And how can we find out more about you? Is the NCBC website the best place? Yes, there's a bio on, on all of us there. I'm there. <laughs> the you <laughs> to me this morning is there. So. Well, we are grateful. So it's ncbcenter.org, and that's the official website, Dr. Marie Hilliard. Thank you so much. Nice being with you, Brooke. Thank you for what you do. Thank you, thank you, thank you. for what you do. All the best. Wow. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Marie Hilliard, and thank you for your service. Again, additional information, resources linked in the show notes for you. And you can also reach out to me directly. It's thebrooktaylorshow at gmail.com. And your comments, your questions are always appreciated. So on next week's show, I've got a bit of a summer toolbox for you, some summer reading for the kids, how to select the best books for your family and yourself, as well as an epic event for Catholics happening in person over the summer. It's CMN Momentum 21, and I'll be talking to the event coordinator, Kathy Gilmore. So a big jam-packed show as we're getting ready to wrap up the season here. Fun stuff for next week. Thank you to my producer, Mark Cumming, for his dynamic skills and quick work. Mark is a producer extraordinaire. So for any audio video needs you may have, check him out at cominghomestudio.com. A big thank you to our show sponsor. Again, Select International Tours, selectinternationaltours.com slash BTS. God bless you, friends, and keep us. And until next time, pray your rosary. Peace and love. God bless you.